Welcome to the seventh episode of Jamal Belgi South Africa Recapturing Reality TV Warriors. My name is Michael Holmstone, and joining me as always is a Canadian who would never let Davey touch his ass, Logan Saunders. Good evening. Good evening. We are rapidly approaching the end of this season now. Technically, we're in the last third. You gotta love seasons of the mole where you don't have to put up with an insane episode order. And more importantly, insane non-elimination episode orders. Yeah, at least we don't have to, or, you know, big, a season of Big Brother has close to 30 episodes. Survivor does about 14 episodes. The Mole and Vidim, they max out at about nine, including the reunion. <laughs> and the thing is, this season is amazing. We've not had a single bad episode of this season, and spoilers for next week, we don't then either. And even the one task we kept making fun of, the sleeping task, wasn't even as bad as we remembered. No, it was actually quite entertaining, purely because of my personal connection to it. So, previously the Final Five got a nasty surprise when Gilles threw their luggage in the sea and asked them to find it or lose it, but a twist in the challenge showed how little attention they'd paid to South Africa so far. Following a drive to a hotel, they were tested on how well they could control their heart rates as they faced a darkened meeting with the mole and lost all the cash they'd earned earlier that day. After a surprise mid-episode test, they drove through the night to the ostrich capital of the world and tried to preempt the mole's actions, but it was Sam who went home before the final four flew to Johannesburg. And we begin with the treehouse showing the mole books of the seven people to go home so far and a camera setup. Yes, even Jessica's is there. You really hope that if you're looking at Jessica's uh, journal, you're really hoping she went after somebody that's still left in the game. <laughs> yeah, and this season they're not even going to threaten to set fire to them. Yeah, that's a that's actually very rare. They love to burn the mole books. Especially, I know I said this for the Argentina season as well, but especially as your mole book is essentially your one souvenir of the season. It's a bit mean to burn everyone's mole books. It's nice that the worst that they can do is have a cat stand on them in this season. Oh, but what if you're allergic to cats? You'd really wish that they were on fire. Just sanitize it before you get it back, it's fine. Well, this was what the season was one, three years ago now? Back end of 2016, they filmed it. Yeah, so about four years ago they filmed it. So sanitizing everything wasn't quite in our daily routine as much as it is now. So the final four fly to Johannesburg, three candidates and one mole on day 15. And they spot that they're being driven to a rugby field. And after getting dressed, they hear their opponents chanting. They lucked out because Johannesburg is not known for good weather. No, it looks very, very nice, actually. Because we're actually recording this on the day I came, I flew back from Johannesburg last year. And I seem to remember Johannesburg when I flew into it because I only transferred there. I don't remember the weather being terrible there either. And that was kind of the last day of September, early October. Yeah, there's, I mean, of course, like any place is going to have Good stretches of weather here and there, but in general, from people who I know in, in Johannesburg and who I have spent time with, Johannesburg, there's a lot of big stretches during the year where the weather is quite atrocious. And then, especially when I was there too, when I went from the Kruger National Park back to Johannesburg, once we got closer and closer to Johannesburg, there is a huge lightning and rainstorm. To the point that there was lightning strikes on both sides of the highway on either side of us, and that freaked me out. <laughs> was Joburg the place where, when we were recording a podcast, you had to find somewhere where I couldn't hear the rain? I think it was. Yeah. And I did mention this last week, but I think it's quite telling that they can no longer drive themselves when they're in Johannesburg. They have to have a driver for this entire episode. Yeah. 
for safety concerns because Johannesburg is essentially the place you think of when you think South Africa crime. It truly is the epitome of it. I've got I've gotten the lectures. I think I've I've talked about it before on the podcast, but the place I stayed at said, "Don't walk to the restaurant district that's like less than a ten minute walk away unless you're a group of six or more." And then I went out with a friend to a restaurant in Johannesburg, what seemed like a fairly safe area. And she's like, well, yeah, if you're going to a restaurant, you know, you don't have your purse out on the table. You don't have your phone out at all. You just keep everything down in your pocket and then you'll have a good time at the restaurant. And I'm thinking to people from most countries, that would seem like extreme measures. But I guess if you just put up with that on a daily basis, it doesn't seem like that much of an inconvenience to you anymore. Yeah, Johannesburg is the place where if you look at, for example, the British Foreign and Commonwealth Office um, guidance on where to travel, Johannesburg is the place with all of the advisories, normally. Don't drive yourself to Kruger National Park, because more often than not, that's where all the carjackings happen, that sort of stuff. Or like on the route to it? Mm, Yeah, apparently there's a lot of carjackings on on the road to Kruger. Interesting. I'm glad I didn't know that. (laughs) I'm glad I didn't know that when I was in the shuttle. That's why I was kind of a bit surprised when you said you'd gone to Kruger. I'm just thinking, Kruger is really not safe from what I've heard. The road too. Well, well, well the person who I had dinner with, she's she's an employee at Kruger, so she'd be driving that route to Kruger every time, unless there's a specific route that the shuttle and people know take that they know that's safer than maybe what most tourists would do when driving to Kruger. Or the fact that it's a shuttle makes it less obvious. It's a bit tougher to get a... Yeah, like I remember we would stop at the gas stations on the way to Kruger and he wasn't too, yeah, he wasn't like locking up the car or anything. So I'm guessing it's easier to pick out the tourists who were driving there, maybe. I mean, I was spoiled by the fact that I went to a private game reserve, but I was a bit surprised when you said you went to Kruger, just because I've heard all the stories about Kruger. Kruger. <laughs> Having said that, um, you did go to Kruger and you could have stumbled upon the uh, the set for um, I'm a Celebrity Australia, because they film in uh, in Kruger National Park. Yeah, yes they did. So, Gilles greets them in the middle of the field and asks if anyone recognises the music playing out the speakers as they run over. Did you recognise it? Uh, I'm trying to remember. Let's see. Let me bring up my notes. <laughs> I want to see whether you recognise it, because it does have another mole connection, which is why I point it out. Let's see, let's get let's get to a flavoring number seven in my notes. I don't know what the first one was supposed to be. I don't think I wrote it down. I only know because I um I recognized it and thought I'm just going to find out exactly what song this is. It was uh, "Conquest of Paradise" from the Ridley Scott film 1492. It was also the piece of music that was played by the bazooki player in the Metro Challenge in Belgium, Greece earlier this year. They love to connect their seasons with with subtle references. Yeah, I didn't even realise that until I looked through my notes. I thought, I recognise the phrase Conquest of Paradise. And looked through my notes uh, for Greece and went, oh my god, it was the bazooki song. And he asks for the candidate who knows the most about film music, and they choose Davy. And Davy has 30 rugby balls on a rack with film titles written on them. He's got to identify the 10 films from which pieces of music will be played. He then has to kick them across the field to his teammates, who must catch the ball in zones with either 100 euros, 200 euros, or 500 euros. Whatever they catch is what they win for the challenge. And there are also two zones, one worth zero euros and one that bankrupts the challenge. They will also be opposed by a professional rugby team who they heard chanting earlier, who will try and defend when Davy kicks a ball. And the time limit of the challenge is until the rugby team pushes a 900 kilo scrum machine to the other side of the field, at which point they will not earn any more money. 
The other three also get actors stuck to their backs. Only the contestant whose actor is the lead in the film that is kicked can catch the ball to earn any money. I like how when Jill's initially explains the challenge, she says, yeah, you just got to catch the rugby ball that Davy kicks and then put it down in one of these two zones, avoid zero and bankrupt. And they all say, and then Robin says, I sense a big, a big catch coming. And then Jill's like, yeah, there, there is one. There is one. There'll be a rugby team chasing you down. Oh, by the way, they've been told to do full contact. <laughs> they will not hold back. They will play exactly as you expect a professional rugby team from Johannesburg to play. Annalise, be glad you've got both your hips, because you might not after this challenge. <laughs> you might need a hip replacement. But this is what I mean when I talked about, I think it was, was it last week I talked about this during the um, during the air bubble challenge? This is by far the most physically demanding season of any of the Belgian ones. Because you have stuff like the potentially swinging off a building, you have the air bubble challenge, you've got electric shocks, you've got potentially fighting with ostriches, you've got being drunk in a South African museum where the guard is definitely going to have a gun, you have the rugby challenge. Like They are not going easy on Annalise, who is in her 60s. So more power to Annalise for actually, you know, not dying this season. Yeah, luckily she was able to find rules in some of these challenges that didn't uh, involve as much uh, physical effort. But uh, once you get down to Final Four, it's tough to find rules for people that aren't physical. Like either she's going to have to be the one to kick the rugby ball, you know, a couple hundred feet, or be the one that's running around. So I'm guessing this was the best spot for her. But there really, there really wasn't a good spot for her in this challenge, though. And because I'm me, I did also find out every single movie that was on this rack. I spent so long pausing this challenge trying to work out what balls were on the rack. Were there any really obscure movies? Um, for a few dollars more is pretty obscure, I think. Yeah. Well, I'll quickly run through them because I'm me. So it was, in order... Gladiator, Pulp Fiction, Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, Fight Club, Con Air, The Mask, Dances with Wolves, Jurassic Park, Superman, Waterworld, for a few dollars more, The Rock, Batman, Armageddon, The Good, The Bad, The Ugly, Silence of the Lambs, Pirates of the Caribbean, Charlie's Angels, Lord of the Rings, Braveheart, Indiana Jones, Kill Bill, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, and E.T., Saving Private Ryan, Requiem for a Dream, Mad Max, Edward Scissorhands, Star Wars, and The Goonies. Some of those I would have no idea on the theme. Yeah, some of those are quite notable. I mean, Pulp Fiction does come up. Very notable soundtrack for the whole surf rock vibe. Jurassic Park, if you don't get the Jurassic Park theme, even I would, and I don't watch that many films. Superman, you should know the theme to Superman. You should know the theme to Superman. Pirates of the Caribbean, you should know that one. Lord of the Rings, pretty famous soundtrack. Braveheart should hopefully be the only one of the 30 with bagpipes, so it's pretty notable. Indiana Jones, very famous theme. E.T., very famous theme. Star Wars, very famous theme. Like A lot of these are quite notable, and production aren't too mean with the ones they pick, I would say. No, and then the ones that they ignore are the more obscure ones. Like, I can't, like, I've seen The Mask, and I could identify a couple couple songs from The Mask, but I couldn't tell you what the main theme of The Mask was. We're not even up to the challenge where um, where people are looking at each other's asses yet, Logan. You can't see any thongs yet. <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> yeah, a, a few of these films have got very recognisable soundtracks. A few of them you can kind of work out from the context clues, like Braveheart being the only one, hopefully, with bagpipes, which are Satan's instrument. 
if you'd asked me to identify some of the other ones, I'm not sure I could have. I would have really struggled with a couple of them. So, Robin starts with Johnny Depp, Annalise starts with Mel Gibson, and Aline starts with Christopher Reeve. The first film is Pirates of the Caribbean, and there is a wonderful bit of CGI showing the Pirates of the Caribbean ball flying through the air, because you can guarantee David did not kick it as straight as that. (laughs) He's not. I don't think rugby is that popular in Belgium. No, but rugby is very, very, very popular in South Africa. Yes. I wish they would have had the actual Springboks team. If they'd had the actual Springboks team, it would have been a bloodbath. Like, especially when we get to the bit where Davey tells the rugby players to go for the guy in the red hat. Like, Robin would have been going out of there on a stretcher. <laughs> so, Robin is the one who has to catch it. He catches correctly, puts it down in the 500 euro zone, and then becomes Harrison Ford and scratches his ass before the next round begins. And the second one is the abomination of bagpipe music in Braveheart, and Annalise should be catching. Davey, however, incorrectly chooses Dances with Wolves and knows he's wrong. Eileen fumbles it and scores nothing, and Annalise becomes Uma Thurman. I'm amazed he did not, like, even if you don't know the theme to Braveheart, you know it's a Scottish film. What's the most popular instrument in Scotland? Uh, Bagpipes, I believe. So I'm very surprised. I'm like, I don't know the theme to Braveheart, but this has got to be the Braveheart one. Is it the instrument made of an animal's bladder? You can bet it'll be Scottish. (laughs) Yeah. So the third one is the very recognisable theme from Superman. Eileen catches it and puts it down in the 500 euro zone. But Davy chose Indiana Jones. (laughs) I'm so sorry, Davy, but that was messing up Braveheart and Superman back to back. Instantly, you're thinking... Davy was not the guy for that role. No, are you wondering why at this point in the season I still suspected Davy? <laughs> I don't think there would be many people. I, I understand there's extra pressure to pick quickly, and you're not thinking, oh yeah, there's bagpipes. What's the only film that has a setting in Scotland from the 14th or 15th century? Oh yeah, it's got to be Braveheart by default then. But the fact he messed up Braveheart and then Superman back to back, especially Superman. Superman is. Just as iconic, if not more iconic, than Pirates of the Caribbean. Like, everyone everyone humps the theme to Superman. I would say the Superman theme is probably the most recognisable theme of the 30. Maybe Star Wars? Maybe Pulp Fiction? I'd say Superman and Star Wars are more recognisable than Pulp Fiction. I guess it depends on your generation, too. Yeah, like, the piece from Pulp Fiction they picked is by far the most notable one. Ask me anything else off the Pulp Fiction soundtrack, I'd probably have a little wobble, although if it was surf rock themed, I'd kind of guess Pulp Fiction regardless. Whereas, like, of the 30, I would say Jurassic Park is a very famous theme, Superman, very famous theme, Indiana Jones, E.T., Star Wars, I'd say those are the top five. And they all get picked. So, the fourth piece is Mizaloo from Pulp Fiction. Annalise fumbles it, she pulls a muscle while sprinting and apologises to Jill, and she becomes Clint Eastwood but not after the Doctor from the Sleep Challenge gives her a massage. Yeah, I thought for a second, does Annalise get pulled pulled out of the challenge? It wouldn't have surprised me if they just kept it to Robin and Aline for the rest of it. I mean, if she can't run, she can't play, right? I do love how we don't get any mention of basically any of the production crew for the first five episodes, and then the Doctor makes a cameo in two challenges back-to-back on two separate episodes. Because it's the same guy who Annalise spent the entire night with just chatting to in the caravan with all the lights on. (laughs) She trusts him with the quick massage. 
they bonded in that caravan. Well, what else are you going to do for seven hours in a caravan all alone, watching someone sleep? A stand over Robin poking him in the face going, are you asleep? Are you asleep? Are you asleep? Are you not asleep? How did that happen? No wonder Robin is grumpy this episode. After everything that's gone on this season, and then not being allowed to sleep in the caravan, and now you're like, oh, Davy couldn't pick out Braveheart, Davy couldn't pick out Superman, and then Annalise managed to pull a muscle and probably is as close to being out of commission this challenge without being actually out of commission. That's the point, actually. This still would have been the same day that they pulled up in Utsorn, wouldn't it? So they've done an entire overnight challenge. They've maybe slept three hours at most on the plane between George Airport and Johannesburg. Then they've immediately gone straight into this rugby challenge. And then there's immediately another challenge at night as well. They don't actually get any sleep until they get to Soweto. They didn't have a one-day break? No, it's still day 15, I think. That's a busy day. Because I'm pretty sure um, that episode 8 starts... Yeah, it starts on day 17, I think. So it's a very long day for them. Hmm. Maybe we can cut Davy a bit more slack on not having his brain fully functional to identify otherwise obvious films. So they're up all day, um, all day 15 and did the overnight challenge starting at 2am. Got to Utsun for 6am, did the execution, so the adrenaline would have been spiking then. Then immediately went to George, flew to Johannesburg, did this challenge, did the Spot the Difference challenge, and then go to their um, hostel in Soweto. That is a long day. Yeah. So the fifth piece is from Star Wars, but Davy slip when collecting it, and they score nothing, and Robin <laughs> becomes Ewan McGregor. Davy's having an absolute shock of a challenge here. And then the sixth piece is from Requiem for a Dream. Aline doesn't pick it up because it was in a bankrupt zone, and she becomes Nicolas Cage. Or John Travolta. Yeah, good point. We don't know, right? True, I don't think John Travolta is in this challenge, is he? So they could just kind of change it halfway through just to surprise him. Well, they could have used him for Pulp Fiction. Yeah, they use Uma Thurman for that one, though, don't they? Yeah, they do. The seventh piece is the very recognisable theme from The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly. Annalise drops the ball, so it doesn't count. And Robin, it's fair to say, is incredulous. <laughs> but you have to put the ball down for it to count. You can't drop the ball. It has to be planted onto the ground after they miss the last five. I'm sure Robin is furious because not only is there sleep deprivation involved, but they finally get one where Davy knows it. They get the ball. That those euros should have been theirs, but Annalise doesn't know the rules of rugby. I absolutely adore that all of the last four pieces of music in this just have a note saying, Robin gets very angry. Yeah. He threatens to take his shorts off, which is the strangest threat for anybody to do out of a place of anger. I'm going to take off my shorts because I am angry. Not, I'm going to punch you. I am going to yell. It's, I am going to remove an article of clothing to express how angry I am. The irony is, of course, that I bet he wishes he took off his shorts for the final challenge. But yeah, he starts off being absolutely apoplectic with Annalise from this one. Then he threatens to take his shorts off after um, after Davy tells the rugby players to tackle him. Then he starts swearing... And then he just rants about Davy at the end. So, uh, Annalise becomes Drew Barrymore, and Davy tells the rugby players to tackle the one in the red cap. And I don't think Robin heard him, which makes it even more fun. And the eighth piece is Lust for Life from Trainspotting, which 
arguably I would have known. I'm not sure it's as well known as some of the themes in this one. I I I, I would know that it's the theme for Train Spotting without having seen Train Spotting, but I, I wouldn't have been 100 percent sure when I pick it. But I'm thinking I'm pretty sure this is the Train Spotting theme. Same here, but most of these I would say have quite recognizable, not necessarily themes like main title themes, but have quite recognizable themes actually in terms of the type of music. So like you have Braveheart with the awful bagpipes, you have The Good, The Bad and The Ugly with the kind of spaghetti western sound, you have Pirates of the Caribbean, which, you know, goes without saying, Jurassic Park, very recognizable score, E.T., very recognizable score, Lord of the Rings and Saving Private Ryan, both quite military scores. What did he pick for E.T.? Well, E.T. is the ninth one. He picked Star Wars for that one. <laughs> I forgot. I'm like, holy shit. Oh, is Davy just trying to deflect suspicion so people suspect him at the end? Or and then his defense was, I've only seen E.T. once when I was seven. I'm thinking, just think of all of the parodies that have existed since then and how many times they showed that specific clip. So Davy doesn't know train spotting, and Robin gets a bit passionate. He threatens to take his shorts off in anger and drops the ball in the 100 euro zone and becomes Anthony Hopkins. Somehow Davy got that one right. The ninth piece is from E.T. Davy picks up the wrong ball, which is Star Wars. And did you write down Robin's um, Robin's reaction to when he found out it was Star Wars? Because this was not subtitled. No, I didn't. I'm 99% sure, because I went back and double-checked this, that he screams that Davy is fucking shit. <laughs> I think if you hear the E.T. theme and you pick Star Wars, especially when Star Wars is dun 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 Yeah, maybe you deserve that insult. Yeah, I did have to double check before writing my notes that he definitely did say that, but I'm pretty sure he did. Having said that, whilst it's pretty unforgivable still, it's sort of understandable because both are John Williams scores. They are the same composer, at least. It could be worse. Yeah. Maybe Davey's a big John Williams expert from the sleep deprivation. He's like, oh, I know it's John Williams. I just don't know which John Williams track it is. Well, it's the same as with Superman and uh, Indiana Jones. I think they're both John Williams ones as well. Did John Williams do the good, the bad, and the ugly too? (laughs) Don't think he's old enough. (laughs) Maybe he's dad. Yeah. And Annalise becomes Bruce Willis as a result of E.T., and the last piece is from The Rock, which I would have had no idea about. David chooses Gladiator, which is wrong, and Robin misses the ball anyway, and says that he knew all ten films and should have done it. I would have gotten eight out of ten. Yeah, I I would have got Pirates of the Caribbean, definitely. Would have got Braveheart because of the awful bagpipes. Uh, would have got Superman. Would have got Pulp Fiction. Would have got Star Wars. Probably wouldn't have got Requiem for a Dream. Yeah, that's the one I wouldn't have got either. I, w- I was like, is that Requiem of, a- Requiem of a Dream? But I wouldn't know for sure. It's not as recognisable a soundtrack as the rest of them, is it? No. Would have got The Good, The Bad and The Ugly. Would have got Train Spotting. Would have got E.T. So yeah, 8 out of 10 for me as well. Oh, that's that's funny that we would have messed up on the exact same ones. <laughs> yeah, you're way more of a film buff than I am. I don't know about that. <laughs> <laughs> Compared to me, you are. <laughs> And Jill gets a bit sassy with them and says they could have earned 5,000 euros today, but they didn't earn much. <laughs> he was really sassy in this moment. He's like, you can earn 5,000? And he just does this little shrugged gesture towards the scoreboard. And he's like, eh, you didn't earn as much as you could have. 
I know this is more of a next week question, but why do you think Jill was so sassy this season? Because we've never seen him be such a bitch to people. And I'm not criticising because it's delightful and it really makes me laugh every time we come up with a surprise Gilles de Costa dick moment. But it's really mean at points. This is how I would view it. Um, during the Argentina season, uh, there's some people in the cast where I don't think Jill's clicked as well as all of the other seasons. Where I don't think he was quite in that state of pick only pick contestants who I know I'll click with for the entire three weeks and beyond in pre-production, post-production. With South Africa, maybe he went all in on these casting choices of people who are, you know, diverse in terms of background and and age and whatnot. But Jill's really clicked with all of them, so he knew that he could get a he could be it's like being around like a really close group of friends as opposed to strangers where if you're around people who you don't really know that well or don't click with as well you don't make the same types of jokes as you would say around people who you really like and know really well like there's stuff that you say to your best friend and make fun of them that you wouldn't say to i don't know an uncle that you see once a year <laughs> i think it probably is that as well but it's way more noticeable in South Africa than any of the other four seasons, I would say, is Jill is quite mean to them at points. Only teasingly, but he, he sasses them a lot. I think the additional factor, too, is because I think Robin might be the angriest contestant out of the past four or five seasons whenever a challenge doesn't go their way. So maybe because Robin's there, it's so much more fun to just just remind him of how much they failed at the challenge. Like, if you had Robin as your kicker, you could have earned more. If Annalise knew the basic rules of rugby, you could have earned more. <laughs> Thinking about it, the only person who was there for all three of Jill's really sassy moments is probably Robin. Because you have the drunk museum heist intro, where Annalise obviously wasn't there. You have the um, the Scrabble game where he just constantly sasses Annalise and Robin. And then you have this point. Robin's the only one to have been at all three, so that's actually a pretty good shout. It probably is just him going, Robin, you're still very angry. I'm just going to mock you in this moment. Are Jill's and Robin the closest in age out of anybody? Oh my god, I don't know. I would have to double check. Because Jill's is close to 40, and I know Robin's right around 40, isn't he? Because that could, that could also be an extra factor, too. Is It's not just Jill's really relating to this cast. It's the fact that him and Robin would be would be very similar in their generation and upbringing. I don't know how many different types of upbringings you have in as small of areas Flanders. <laughs> so Jill would have been 34 when they filmed South Africa, and Robin was 43. Oh, okay, so not that close in age. So Jill also asks who the most observant two of the four are, and they volunteer Eileen and Davy. and Robin actually apologises to the group for his passion. He says he can't play sports for fun anymore, and he also says that he doesn't know who the mole is anymore after this challenge. Who says that, Robin? Robin, yeah. That's Robin in the car to Annalise. And that's not a good spot to be in heading into the, in the final four. And everyone just starts suspecting each other by now. Davey should have known ET. Aline plays football, so she should know how to handle a ball. And Annalise dropped her one successful catch. What a mess. <laughs> Yeah, this entire challenge was a mess, but it was a very fun mess. Yeah, it seemed like a genuinely fun challenge to play. Yeah, and also, more importantly, very prescient for South Africa. 
South Africans love love rugby more than any other sport. Believe me, I was there during the Rugby World Cup. They love rugby. And in fact, pretty much every South African we met who heard we were English was wishing us luck for the World Cup as long as we didn't come up against South Africa. And Eileen and Davy are taken to the Bell Gables house, a restaurant full of antiques. And they speculate why it matters that they were observant. And after 30 minutes of eating, the manager appears and takes them on a tour of the house. As the tour is going on, items from their table area are swapped out. Robin and Annalisa sat in a separate room and given the actual challenge, they have to put price values on the changes that were made. If Davy and Aline spot them, then that amount is added to the pots. And to add to the fun, they're not told the changes. And the graphics on this are brilliant. Yeah, because they actually highlight the value on each one as they enter back into the room. And they highlight all the things that are changed. Yeah, this is another um, another thing that I'll probably bring up more next episode. But the graphics on this season are delightful. Because you have this spot, the difference challenge, where they do take the time to highlight all the changes so we can see exactly what they're looking at. But even stuff like the schoolhouse challenge next week, when they're doing the is it this person or the, is it that person bit at the houses, they manage to put the person's names on the houses as people are like walking in and things. And it's a really cool way of doing it. It's just the care and attention that we trumpet so much about Belgian Mole just coming out in these bits. So, Gilles appears and tells him the actual challenge, and Davy says that he knew it. Well, he did. He, he, knew, he knew what the challenge was probably going to be. And they get three chances. When they make three mistakes, the challenge will end. And annoyingly, this isn't actually a wonderful challenge for us to recap because it's a very visual challenge. But they spot the bowl of fruit straight away and earn 300 euros. However, Davey spots the wrong egg that's changed and gives them their first strike. Yeah, he gets it. This is another, we'll get to it, but it's another very sassy chills moment. Literally every egg, Davey, apart from the right one. Yeah, he's like, oh, it's just a way that Jill's delivered the line too at the, when they get their third strike. And Davey does, he knows that an egg has been swapped out, but he just keeps getting wrong as to which one it is. And then Jill just casually says, yeah, it's the only it's the only egg you didn't pick. <laughs> Do you think Jill was a bit sleep deprived when doing this episode? I think so. It was probably pretty funny too because of how much Robin and Annalise are like, "Oh, they're they're for sure gonna figure out the egg. The egg is super obvious." <laughs> nope. <laughs> Davy knows an egg has been changed. She just just can't piece together which one it was. So they choose the Buddha statue, and that earns them another 350 euros, and they're also correct for 150 euros with another one of the statues. And then Davy picks the wrong egg, giving them one strike left. They spot the 50 euro object. Eileen picks another wrong statue, ending the challenge at 850 euros of a possible 2750. They did not pick any of the top three money items. No. The top three money items, the pillow that Davy was set on, the vase in the corner behind Eileen, and the egg behind Davy were not picked. And as Logan said, Jill did get a little bit sassy with Davy for picking every other egg apart from the right one. I like how it's just funny the perception of a team of two thinking, hmm, if I was eating that restaurant, which items would I know being swapped out? And I like how the one that they thought was the most obscure ends up being picked, and the top three most obvious ones that they thought weren't chosen at all. <laughs> Maybe they just got the wrong end of the stick with the challenge. But yeah, actually, at the end of the challenge, Robin's like, oh, I should have been the one in the restaurant. <laughs> Not Davy. Yeah, Robin was just sat watching the Spot the Difference game, just going, I'm going to take my shorts off if they don't get this top three soon. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> he walks into the room wearing, not wearing any pants. 
Why aren't you wearing any pants, Robin? Why do you think, Davy? My nephew does better with spot the difference pictures. But that also goes back to something we said on the um, the inflatable blob challenge in episode three, because if you remember, Bertrand got a child's puzzle on the blob. And yet again, Eileen and Davy basically get a child's puzzle here. Arguably a bit more difficult than um, than Bertrand's wire puzzle, but not much more difficult. They should have done a lot better than they did on this one. The one surprising thing that might make people think that Robin or Annalise are the mole is the fact that they put such a high value on the pillow. Because I was thinking, hmm, I wouldn't be noticing the pillow. I'd be looking. I'd be looking at the table. I'd be looking across from me because I'm sitting down on that pillow. I'm not going to be like, ooh, pillow. Essentially, you only get one chance to spot that difference, which is when you're sitting down. I like best place I imagine would be picking anything that was on the table itself, which I believe they do pick out the bowl of fruit and didn't they pick something else out that was on the table? Uh, it's the bowl of fruit, the Buddha, uh, there's another statue behind them, and then the 50 euro kind of spear thing. Yeah, the spear thing was off to the side though. Yeah, they're the only four they pick. Yeah. But yeah, I would not be picking something that Davy sat on for 90% of the time. And after a very long day, they arrive at their guest house in Soweto with a note saying that there is a treehouse in the garden filled with seven losers' mole books that will be unlocked all night. Each mole book looked at costs the group 500 euros and then starts a massive mind game over literally everyone apart from Robin going, you're not opening any of them. Do not open any of them because we will kill you. And Robin just going, oh, but I just want to look at one or two or seven. <laughs> so this is my perspective on why this game went down the way it did. The mole isn't going to look at the journals because that would be too obvious. Listeners are going to know who the mole is through this conversation. Okay, so let's say you're the person who knows who the mole is. You know that you're on your way to winning the game. You know who you don't want to look at the journals and potentially get on the same track as you. So if you're going straight ticket on who the mole is, your mindset is really pressure people to not look at any of the journals, really guilt trip them. Especially when you know that they're basically going to cost you money. Yeah, you you know it's your money. You know the 22,000 euros so far is going to be yours. Keep people away from the journals. And then if you're the mole, you don't want to draw attention to yourself, so you don't want to be looking at the journals. And then if, say, you're the person who gets executed this episode and just a few hours earlier you said, I have no idea who the mole is, then in that case, you sure as hell be looking at least two or three of the journals, I would say. Yeah, it's really interesting from Robin's point of view because he only wants to look at one mole book, which is Hans, because he had an alliance with Hans, not that we ever saw it. And Hans basically said that he'd gone straight ticket on one person and written it down in his diary. So he just wants to see who it was. And I'm shocked he didn't look at Sam's journal. I've still not seen the reunion again. Was Sam the last person to go home without being on the right track? I think I, I think he was. I don't think I'm I don't think he picked the mole. I can't remember whether Sam did pick the mole or Sam didn't pick the mole. I know it's it's either him or Hans who went home last without knowing who it was. But I think we have previously said that Sam didn't know who it was. I think it was only the final four who do. I think so. But either way, if you're if you're in Robin's position, you'd, I would look at the last two journals, especially if he's that lost as to who it could be. 
Yeah, once you open one, you might as well open another, being honest. I think you got to look at the, if you're looking at the person who finished in six, I think you got to look at the person who finished in fifth. So Davey leads the charge for no one to spend money because it's not the right way to play the game, and Robin is literally the only one who doesn't vote to ignore them. And Davey says he hopes it completely confuses Robin if he opens any diaries, but do what you want. He would rather earn an advantage than take it. That'll become relevant soon. I bet you if Davey was as lost as Robin was, he'd be looking at the journals. <laughs> so at 2.26am, Robin does indeed head up to the treehouse. But my favourite thing about the treehouse, other than the cat that randomly comes in an hour and a half later, is that the treehouse actually has a bed. So I wonder, I wonder whether production were kind of thinking, is someone going to sleep in the treehouse tonight to stop anyone else actually being able to sneak in and take a look at the mole books? Oh, like Grease with the safe? Yeah, like Grease with the uh, the Pandora's box, yeah. That's a good point. I suspect that that's why there was a, a bed in that treehouse. Or they they expected Robin to look at every single journal and have to just fall asleep while reading all of them. Or they expected Davy to um, to go up there first and just sleep in there so no one else could disturb him. Yeah, just Robin tries to sneak in there, and then whoever's laying on the bed just scream as loudly as possible. It also would have made for a very funny moment when uh, the cat walks in. Yeah, the cat just curls up on the bed next to Davy. And he does say that he wants to open Hans's diary because he answered 18 of the 20 questions on one person when he went home, and he wants to see who that was. And he leaves the treehouse at 2.46am. At 4.13am, a cat enters, but that is the only creature that does it after Robin. So they wake up on day 16 in Soweto, and Robin is announced and outed as a traitor at breakfast as Jill announces that he was the only person to read anything and cost the group 500 euros. And they head out for a cycle tour of Soweto. That looked like fun. Yeah, a very pleasant dinner. I like Soweto. I didn't go to Soweto. I um, I didn't go really anywhere around Johannesburg. Although I'm a little bit surprised they're willing to film the Mulbelgi for half an episode in Soweto. Well, actually, they say in some ways it's actually safer. It's actually safer than Johannesburg. Forget it. Actually, it's probably a good idea they filmed in Soweto instead of instead of doing the whole episode in Johannesburg. Yeah, I was going to say. I think I'm pretty sure Vidum went there when they did their South Africa season, and I'm pretty sure France did as well. Yeah, they did Soweto instead of Johannesburg. I think they both did a visit to Soweto because, if I'm not mistaken, Vidum did the the Cooling Towers bungee jump. Yeah, we even stopped there on our uh, Soweto tour was at the Towers. And they changed the graffiti. It's kind of interesting. They changed the graffiti on it every, uh, was it every year? Once a year, I think they, once a year or once every two years, they changed the graffiti. And they head out for the cycle tour of Soweto. And Aline says you shouldn't look for answers when you're certain. Annalise thinks that the mole didn't look at the diaries on purpose because it would have been too obvious. Davy says you have to be strong to survive the final tests, and he would have only looked sneakily. And Gilles greets them in the afternoon at the 12 Decades Hotel in the Mabadeng district, and says each of them can earn a thousand euros for the pots. Everyone will have a separate challenge. Anything that they earn can be exchanged for two yokers. When they enter the room, they could win up to a thousand euros, but they have a choice when they leave to either tell the truth or lie to the other three in a five-minute interrogation. If they tell the truth, they will earn the money for the pots. If they fool the others, they will win two yokers. And if they choose to lie, Gilles will also give them a recommended lie. And the reason I know it's the 12 Decades Hotel is because it was actually used as an accommodation place on the Vidum South Africa season. They stayed in some of these rooms. Hmm. They probably were influenced by Vidim to stay in those rooms. Well, it's kind of a quirky hotel in Johannesburg, so if they knew they were going to be ending in Pilanesburg, they kind of need to fly to Joburg at some point. 
so then they can make a stop to Soweto and to um, and to a quirky hotel, not necessarily to stay there, but to kind of do a challenge there. Because by the look of things, anything goes in that hotel. They will let you do literally anything, even pretend that you dressed up as a T Rex and scared some children. So Davy is the first to enter. He enters 1986 to 1996 Catwalk Customs, and he has to crowd surf from one end of the room to the other and grab money hanging from the ceiling. He's got one song by a South African thrash metal band to grab the money, and he grabs all a thousand euros and chooses to tell the truth. However, his opponents all think he's lying, so he earns no money but two yokers. And he even gloats to Robin that he was given the two yokers and earned them himself. <laughs> nah, everyone likes to give Robin a hard time. I know we're going to be eulogizing Robin fairly soon, but I'd always had the impression of Robin as being a bit of a sourpuss. I know I've said it on previous episodes. I've got a bit of an appreciation for Robin just kind of being the butt monkey this season now. Once Bertrand goes home, Robin really steps up and is the victim of the group. So Annalise is the second person up. She is at 1956 to 1966, Main Street Constellations. From this point onwards, we don't see what everyone has done until they've been interrogated. Her challenge was to swap 10 flies with pancakes, each worth 100 euros, and got eight of them in five minutes. <laughs> you know when we talked to, to Jill and said, how the hell did you come up with the drunk museum heist in the ostrich maze? How the sweet hell did I forget we had a challenge that involved Annalise swatting flies with pancakes and I didn't ask about it? It's odd. <laughs> it's not the first idea that would come to mind. Why pancakes? Exactly. It's just one of those challenges that is so multi-layered because not only do you start with like, I think we should have a challenge where we put a big tank in the middle of this room in the 12 Decades Hotel. Okay, what do we fill the tank with? Let's fill it with flies. Have we got any flies, people? Right, so we've got 10 flies. The South African RSPCA will let us kill these 10 flies. That's fine. Right, what are they going to swat it with? Because this is Belgium Mall. We can't do anything normal. So, have we got any breakfast foods? We can't use waffles, because they're not kind of floppy enough to do it with. We've got any pancakes. <laughs> but not your normal pancakes. We'll use, like, crepes, because they're really thin and kind of floppy and good to whack stuff with. <laughs> That's perfect, guys. Let's go home. Like, it's just, where does this come from? Especially the, that they picked the crepe-style pancakes, because they're they're debating, they're in this room talking about, oh man, okay, so what type of pancake do we want to kill the flies with? And then this one guy's like, well, my cousin and I, this one time when we were younger, we thought it'd be hilarious to kill, kill this bug with a crepe, and it whacks really good. So if you want to whack something really good, if you want to use a crepe-style pancake... My absolute favourite thing about this challenge is not even that bit. It's the fact that the editors have so much fun with it because they score it to classical music as she's whacking the flies and it's perfect. It is beat for beat, utter perfection musically and it's brilliant. <laughs> and I feel like we should probably have another chat with Jill after we finish this season and just go, how the hell did you come up with these challenges? Seriously? It's why it's why the Mall Belgi is the best damn show in the reality TV universe right now, yeah. And Davy and Robin both think that Annalise lied about that, because why wouldn't you? But also, why would you make up that you'd stuck your head and torso in a tank and wax flies with pancakes? Especially with how quickly Annalise was answering a lot, like getting really specific with the details. It's like, Annalise isn't going to be the type of person 
to make up a story about killing flies with pancakes. She's not that random. <laughs> I do wish we'd found out what the lies were going to be for the for the three who chose to tell the truth. Yeah, because the one where the person picked the lie, you could tell she noticeably stumbled a lot more in giving the details. So it was a lot easier to pick out that she didn't exactly know all of the details of the task. Everyone else was always quick to answer and get really specific and how much money they earned. Aline's was really vague with her description and she would stumble when responding to the questions. And talking of Aline, she is third up. She is in 1886 to 1896 Vision Main Street and has to scan a QR code with a phone on a short cable to earn a thousand euros. The quicker she does it, the more money she earns at a rate of 200 euros being lost every two minutes. And she decides to lie and the lie for her is that she had to dress up like a dinosaur and make sure that the children in a crash didn't cry. And she claims that they were a bit scared, and for each child that cried, she lost 200 euros. And she earned a big fat nothing. And the best thing about that is the fact that Robin thinks she told the truth. Yeah, yeah I could see Elaine making kids cry. <laughs> and Annalise and Davy do both spot the lie, and she earns absolutely nothing. She tries to use mirrors to scan it, but wastes time doing that. And Gilles says in a voiceover that the easiest way to scan the code is to find the clue on the stereo to look at the bed, where a big version of the QR code is hidden under the duvet. Which Aline finds after it's too late. And she says that she decided to lie because at home she's a good liar. Not that she proved it here. And either way, no money was going to be added to the pot. Literally, if, you, if someone comes up to the interrogation and says, yeah, I earned nothing, you then just have to sniff out whether they're telling the truth or not. Because if they're not, you need to call them on it, otherwise they get two yokers. Yep. So Robin is the last person up. He gets 1936 to 1946. Who is Herbert Lomo? Do you know who Herbert Lomo is? No. I have literally just Googled him as you were talking. He is one of the major founding figures of South African literature and perhaps the first prolific African creative writer in English. Oh. And he comes back either sweaty or wet. He had to protect a lit candle for 10 minutes against wind and rain. Each minute was worth 100 euros and he lasted three minutes. And he chooses to tell the truth. He even offers to let Davy touch his ass to see how damp it is. Offer was rejected. And all three of them guess that he's telling the truth, and in him, no yokers, but them 300 euros of a possible 4,000 for the challenge, 1250 of a possible 11,750 for the episode, and 22,250 of a possible 88,750 for the season so far. And Gilles says goodbye to them by saying that he thinks it's going to be a tense elimination that evening. However, within about a minute, <laughs> as you already pointed out to me on chat early, so I'm stealing this, they end up singing Justin Timberlake. Yeah, Jules is like, man, you guys, it's going to be really rough for you. It's going to be a really tense atmosphere in the car. <laughs> then Justin Timberlake gets pumped on the car radio, and they're all doing dance moves in the car. It's just something that Belgie does so well, is these kind of snap cuts to ridiculous scenes. Because on no other season would you see them, A, driving themselves anywhere on a mole, but B, more importantly, just having fun with each other and kind of enjoying each other's company knowing that someone's going to get eliminated and three of them are going to get to the end, but just knowing that they're just going to be friends after this and it's good fun. Yeah, you're going to, it's, man, you guys are just going to be in, in complete silence, thoughts to yourselves as you're driving to take the quiz. Dance, 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 dance. <laughs> Can't stop the feeling. <laughs> it's like Justin Timberlake's on the call. <laughs> so they do all discuss songs that will remind them of the adventure Annalise says hers is Justin Timberlake Can't Stop the Feeling and Aline says she's sure it's on the playlist and makes a hundred rand bet with Robin over it it is indeed so she earns herself a hundred rand which is like eight euros 
because it's like 10 Canadian, I think. It is, at today's exchange rate, 5 euros and 13 centimes. Hmm, wonder how much euros is to Canadian dollars right now. Uh, 156. Oh, that that's right. That rate is worse than the last time when I was in Europe last year. That is not a good exchange. Oh, I can even see it actually dips down. So it's now time for the test. 20 questions on the identity and actions of the mole. Whoever knows least will go home, except for the mole who can never go home. The other three who survive this test will be the finalists. And Annalise says she's happy she has yokers. Robin says he was hoping he'd get them. Eileen says normally she lies really well and can put people up against her car and manipulate them. Annalise knew she was lying. Even as a dinosaur, you can be gentle with kids. Davy says no one knows he's a good liar. Annalise says she's not too quick at using a computer, so she's hoping that having the advantage of the yokers will help her survive the test. And Aline says she's rattling through the questions to try and survive. Davy says that Annalise is the best liar left. Davy gets the green screen before Robin gets the red and is the last person sent home before the finale. And everyone cries again. At least it's not like Jessica crying where it's where it's like, holy shit, this this devastated her. I think Davy cried more for Robin than he did for Jessica, and he cried a lot for Jessica. Him and Aline were both in tears. Annalise was like, yeah, I don't care. Whatever. <laughs> I'm in the finale. I'm in the final of flavoring. Couldn't give less of a shit. Get him out. <laughs> Davy says whoever wins has a lot to thank Robin for, and Aline also cries and says that he was super competitive. You know, we didn't spot that. Robin's competitive? Nah. So next week, the final three go searching for kids and then on safari before they have one final big red button to contend with, and they will finally find out who the mole is at the fire pit. So do you want to eulogise Robin? Robin was a great character these past few episodes. He's a very sneaky character. You don't see him kind of... You don't see the rise of Robin come up as easily as you do for a lot of the Argentinian characters, for example. But he's always kind of bubbling under, and then as soon as Bertrand goes, he just kind of becomes the butt monkey for the entire team. Everyone just teases him. Well, because he gets so frustrated with some of the actions of the other players. Like, Robin did win them a lot of money and strategize a lot of challenges correctly right from day one. Yeah. Like, like there's there should be zero guilt over him looking into Hans's journal because I'm going to guess probably 25% of that pod at least is all because of him, if not more of it. I know we said this in uh, in episode two, but they 100% do not win that um, that Safari Escape Room challenge without Robin screaming at people. Mainly Hans, let's be honest. And then he was the one who was helped strategize on the, I know it was a big fluke that they succeeded, but the shocking challenge where Robin was the one who figured out a good chunk of the strategy on it, or how to help communicate better. It's really interesting comparing Argentina and South Africa as we kind of are in these two miniseries, because... Stein goes home in fourth, and he is responsible for a lot of the money going into the pot. Robin is responsible for less of the money going into the pot, but Robin still is responsible for a huge chunk of that money. Yeah, it's, t- it's tough to compete with st- with Stein. <laughs> and I know we kind of said this last week, but we had both remembered that Sam was fourth and not Robin, which is really interesting that we both made that mistake. Well, Robin's more... I mean, it's kind. Of, he's not viewed as as much of a main character as say, Davy or Annalise, or even because Sam has his moments too, Robin's a bit more, like, his intensity's not subtle, but he's not, like, a big booming personality, if that makes any sense. I mean, Sam's not a big booming personality either. I don't know. I don't know why we both thought Robin was fifth. No, I don't know either. I think it, 
it might be because in later seasons, Robin's archetype tends to be kind of around fifth or sixth as a finishing spot. Whereas there is a real run, maybe excluding Pascal, there's a real run of kind of the young males finishing in fourth. Yeah, we did go through this last episode. That's probably more of the reason. Because I'm like, well, can't say that Robin's not a big booming personality for mixing him up with Sam. <laughs> no, I, th- I think it's just really interesting that we both forgot. Especially when this episode is really focused on Robin. Yeah, but this entire episode is basically Robin's last stand. And those two, those, the two past Reagan end up being more critical than looking into Hans's journal, I'm sure. Yeah, do you think that that was what sunk him? I don't remember. Do they talk about it in the reunion? I can't remember. I really wish I'd watched the reunion before we did this episode, just so I could actually answer that question. But I guess we'll answer it next round. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm not sure whether the two Yokers sank him, but I feel like it didn't help. I feel like we would have remembered if they did. Yeah, I feel like it didn't help him. But I something in the back of my mind says that he got the right mole, which could suggest that maybe the two Yokers did sink him. Hmm. Well, we'll talk about that next week. So we're doing the final three and the reunion show all in one recording, I believe. We are, again, doing the same thing we did for Argentina, mainly because usually when it comes to a reunion show, we don't have that much to do. It's like, here are some corrections. Here are the sabotages. Here is us making fun of Bertrand for the 100th time this season. And that's about it. Pacing-wise, I think it's more fun for us to just kind of do the finale episode and then the 10 minute section of the reunion that we would do anyway and then actually talk about the season as a whole so have you got anything else to say about this final four episode no it was better than what i remembered and davy will not be on my tv and film trivia team ever again <laughs> so thank you for listening to our demol belty recap we'll be back next week to conclude the hunt for the mole in south africa with the final episodes of the season don't forget you can contact us on Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, or Instagram where we are RTV Warriors, or you can email us on contact at rtvwarriors.com. Logan is on Twitter at LogSuperQuacky, and I'm Jack Armstone. See you next week. Peace out and just chill till the next of flavoring. Yeah. Stay tuned for scenes from what the mole did. So what did the mole do? I have a few for this one. I remember the clues for this episode, I think. <laughs> Aline did not do well at rugby. (laughs) She intentionally missed the ball that went into the bankrupt zone. Do you remember the clue for the rugby challenge? Uh, No, I I know there was a clue, but I don't remember what the clue was specifically. I don't know why, but there are only two clues I can remember for this season, and both of them are from this episode. The rugby one is that some of the songs were from films with corrupt police officers. Oh, right. And the other one is in her challenge in the um, in the Twelve Decades Hotel. The QR code leads to a website saying that she is the mole, and we see it quite clearly on the screen a couple of times. And I did check; the QR code is no longer active. It does lead to a, it leads to an inactive website, sadly. But it does it is still linked to Belgian Mole. It's just not an active website anymore. Booerns. But essentially, if you went to that QR code at the time, it would lead straight to a website saying Eileen is the mole. I wish I could just buy that domain and just put whatever I want on it. <laughs> I think it's a um, a subdomain of the um, of the network, so I don't think you're going to get away with that one. And the other thing that she did do is distract Davy from the correct items in the Spot the Difference game. Yeah, that will be an easy misdirection. Or uh, one funny thing I noticed in the challenge, actually, in the interrogation challenge, 
who was it? Which round was it? It's when Davy and Elaine are both interrogating somebody. Oh, when they're interrogating Annalise. Because Davy's the last one to put in his input, eh? So Annalise is making her case, saying, I'm telling the truth. And Robin says, oh, I think she's lying. And Elaine, probably knowing that Davy is certain she's the mole, she says, hmm, I think Annalise is telling the truth. Davy's the tiebreaker vote, knowing Elaine is the mole. He's like, I'll disagree with Elaine and say she's lying. And then they lose the money. <laughs> so I'm thinking that that was probably a good mind game that Aline played there. When you're second to vote and it's right before the person you know who is on to you. It's like, is he going to intentionally just think I'm sabotaging it and disagree with me? Or do I say what's correct, but then he's going to disagree with me no matter what? <laughs> so it's just a big mind game. Do you think that um, Davey deliberately went with Aline in the Spot the Difference challenge? Yeah, he probably, he wanted to see how, he probably put her in the spotlight a bit more. Yeah, I think it was very interesting that Davey chose to go with Aline on that challenge, knowing that he's onto her, and that she knows he's onto her. And somehow they managed to get to be a pair together. In the same way that Kathy and Jill did a lot of the time. Yeah, because what's someone going to do? No, no, you cannot be with me, because then you'll have more information and confirm your suspicions. So, anything else? Uh, no, I think we covered it pretty good. Cool. Bye-bye. <laughs>